0: Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered From Reality podcast. Uh, I hope your your weekend was well. What is today? Monday, I guess? Yeah, that makes sense. Day after the weekend, Monday as always. Anyways, uh, here it's about 8.30 a.m. in Chicago, and you know, it's kind of strange. It's about 70 degrees, beautiful morning, fairly quiet for a Monday, so I'll, I'll take it, you know. But disclaimer as always... Uh, don't be too pissed off at me if there's any street noise. I live on a busy street, you know, stuff happens at summer, lots of construction. But anyways, yeah, got a good run in this morning and yeah, it's the, the weather's been strange. Yesterday it felt like I was in northern Spain in uh, September. It was kind of cloudy and rainy and cool and today it's about 80 degrees and sunny. So always hard to figure. Had a pretty uneventful weekend, but I have a lot to talk about today, so let's get right to it. Um, First off, I want to talk about Jordan Peterson and his kind of existential despair, his grievance politics and his spiral into madness. I want to talk about the heat wave in Europe, some revelations about the Secret Service, and then why it seems like our nation is kind of talking past each other in almost every political and cultural issue. I'm going to kind of focus mainly on critical race theory and the pretty much unproductive debate between Josh Hawley and UC Berkeley's law professor Kyra Bridges. So first off, maybe I hate myself and that's why I watched it, but I ended up watching a good amount of Jordan Peterson's new video, which is on YouTube because he's been kicked off of almost everywhere else, to be honest. But, um, and it's about the invasion of Ukraine. It's called Russia versus Ukraine or Civil War in the West. And a little hint, he thinks it's a civil war in the West and Putin's in the right. But I didn't watch the entire 50 minutes of it. I watched probably about 30 minutes and kind of skipped around in it just to get the points. I can't listen to that guy speak for very long. He's just a shell of himself. But before I go into why this video is insane, for those who maybe do not follow Mr. Peterson, he's extraordinarily popular. He's a Canadian professor who is mainly really known amongst young men, more conservative types, He's a huge proponent of free speech. He's, um, you know, there was a time when he was one of those people who spoke up about free speech and didn't like cancel culture, and he said some things that I I could really agree with. He's he's also kind of criticized the orthodoxy of ideas that's president in academia, which I think was great. And he's written a few books about rules for life, personal values. He's kind of popularized the idea of clean your room, right? Like, basically, you need to take care of yourself and clean up your life before you start trying to change the world. Again, these are all pretty simplistic things that I don't know if they're that original, but he did a good job of marketing them, and he's popular, and props to him. And, yeah, he appealed to young men who maybe needed direction specifically. I know some of his values I liked, but... Anyways, as the culture wars heated up over the last five years, (laughs) he kind of got... Sometimes wrongly and other times correctly attacked by liberals, the media, university officials, politicians, etc. And to keep this brief, it seems like it took a toll on his sanity and mental health. And I guess that makes sense. If you're constantly defending yourself, being attacked, speaking out, it probably does take a toll on you. He was having some family issues. I believe his wife was sick. And eventually he ended up developing some addiction issues, mental issues. And he ended up in Russia getting treatment, and was in a coma for quite a while, as far as I can tell, and it was back in 2021, late 2020, I forget exactly, he re-emerged a very different man. I think I saw him on Joe Rogan, he showed up on Megyn Kelly, he was on a bunch of podcasts, and he seemed different, a little darker, there was kind of a darkness to him that wasn't there before, and since then it's kind of got worse and worse, and it just seems like always being attacked in the culture wars and always being on the defensive had, the Defensive, sorry, has made him somewhat of a shell of himself, and instead of being the guy who liked dialogue and heterodox ideas, told people to clean their room, he's really now just fragile, angry, and has these almost like weird fascist adjacent theories, like I've, I saw him do one interview where he now did denies climate change is a problem. He thinks, like, China's doing it right. He He's one of the people who defends Putin's kind of regimented masculine society. He's attacking trans people all the time. He, he's been in the news lately. He was kicked off Twitter after, sh- like, shaming and attacking Elliot Page on Twitter, shaming fat people, and pretty much just becoming the exact troll he used to criticize. Now, he also has a show on The Daily Wire, if that says anything about him. But Back to the point at hand, he put out this video on Ukraine, and it pretty much did what every other far-right person is doing. It's this theme of like, yes, Russia is wrong to invade Ukraine and kill lots of innocent people, but, and then they go down this road of false equivalences and turn it into some authoritarian look at how the West has become weak and it's cancel culture's fault, and yeah, (laughs) it's exhausting, but I don't want to go down this whole thing. But, he, but in this video, Jordan, Jordan Peterson basically argues that Russia has not only gone to war to protect itself from what, from what he describes as Western degeneracy, but that our alleged degeneracy basically robs the West of the moral high ground in the conflict. It gets complicated. This guy is a good word salad maker, honestly. But he basically talks about radical gender ideology, the nomination of Ketanji Brown-Jackson, her reluctance to define a woman during the confirmation hearings. And basically, he is arguing that though the invasion is violent, Russia is trying to preserve traditional Western Christian values, and the West is morally bankrupt and cannot even agree on what a man or woman is. And so basically, Putin is trying to save us from ourselves. Uh, And as The Atlantic writes, his beliefs also lead to a sense of unjustified existential despair, about the state of our civilization and culture <sighs> he's exhausting it's really exhausting now I could talk all day about how awful you know this comparison is but David French in that Atlantic article makes a good point he says moreover it's hardly the case that Russia itself is a hotbed of religious fervor because remember that's part of Peterson's argument is that Russia's this like Christian nationalist strong country saving the moral decadence and degeneracy of the West but as David French who is a Evangelical, or a Catholic, I believe. He makes a really good point. It's hardly the case that Russia itself is a hotbed of religious fervor. It's far more secular than the United States. 53% of Americans say religion is important in their lives. Only 16% of Russians do. Also, Russia has a substantially higher murder rate than every member of NATO, including the United States. It suppresses religious freedom, and it has one of the highest measured abortion rates in the world. (laughs) Is Russia defending itself against Western degeneracy and protecting the Christian faith? No. It's distorting and and appropriating Christianity to inflict its own pathological criminality on a peaceful nation and its innocent people. I couldn't think of a better way to say it. So it's it's really fascinating when you, you hear this argument quite frequently by the Tucker Carlson's and the Jordan Peterson's and the J.D. Vance's in a sense the Viktor Orbans, is that, you know, Russia's kind of trying to save the West. No, no, Russia's a weird, weird place. And obviously, Peterson knows nothing about the history here. And ultimately, I think Peterson is the example of someone who is definitely bright in his own right, but he's definitely lost his way. But he's so accustomed to getting attacked by the left that it's kind of changed him, and it's part of his personality now, and so pretty much he has to be a contrarian on anything the left supports now. He's susceptible to that issue I mentioned last week, where people try to apply their own American cultural war perspective to a foreign issue they don't understand, and it's too bad, because I like heterodox views sometimes, and he's lost his way. He's really lost his way, and yeah. Rest in peace, Jordan Peterson. sanity, I guess, because, I mean, I've seen him do some other interviews about other topics, like the trans issues, and the guy's just kind of mean now. But anyways, we'll move on. Moving on, um, I mentioned at the top of the show that I am blessed here that the weather has been beautiful all weekend, somewhat cooler, cloudy. I don't know. I assumed July was going to be hotter. It is getting hotter, but I've been lucky, I guess. But the same cannot be said about Europe or the West Coast or most of the country, <laughs> The United Kingdom issued something insane, which was its first ever extreme heat warning, with temperatures expected to touch a record high of 41 degrees Celsius today. And for those who do not know Celsius that well, 41 degrees is about 105 degrees, which is simply just unfathomable for Britain, in my opinion. And as The Economist notes in quotes, over the weekend, wildfires ravaged through France, Portugal, Spain, and North Africa, as well as parts of Croatia, Greece, Italy, and Turkey. Temperatures soared above 45 degrees in several places, intensifying fears about climate change. Thousands of people have been evacuated from their homes in the French department of Gironde, in Spain's province of Malaga, and in parts of Morocco. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of insane. I've been seeing Instagram stories from friends in Europe, um, been following it a little bit on the weather. And yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of friends in Spain, mainly in Madrid and and, and some in the UK as well, and I've been talking to them a bit about things and um, one of my really good friends gave me a great description. I texted her yesterday because I saw on the weather app on my phone that it was 100, deg- 100 degrees in Madrid and Apple had this strange warning. It said disruption due to extreme high temperatures and my friend basically the- described this to the effect of the air quality is awful because there's no wind and the pollution has just settled in the Madrid basin. Also, there's fires raging across Spain and most of Europe. So not only is it hot, but the air quality is pretty much just shit. It's very unhealthy. It's like a mixture of smoke and pollution, heat. It sounds awful. Um, To go into more detail, PBS has an article from last night that reads, and quotes here, Two huge blazes that have been consuming pine forests for six days just south of the city of Bordeaux in southwest France have forced the evacuation of some 14,000 people, including many who were sent... Uh, to, the, uh, to the area um, to vacation at campsites. In Spain, firefighters supported by the Army Forces um, emergency brigades are trying to stamp out over 30 fires consuming forests spread across the country. Spain's National Defense Department said the majority of its firefighting aircraft have been deployed. Many areas are rugged, hilly terrain that make it difficult for ground crews to access. There, there also have been deaths reported at the time of this recording. But the same article does note that, in quotes, according to Spain's Carlos III Institute, which records temperature-related fatalities, 360 deaths were attributed to high temperatures from July 10th to the 15th. There is one report of a street cleaner dying in Madrid after having a heat stroke, so now the city is allowing employees to do their jobs at night. So not, not, not good. I mean, and I know it's July, weather's hot, but this is a lot of unprecedented issues. And... I will just add that probably the most worrying thing about this article is that it reads in quotes, temperatures in southern England may reach 41 degrees Celsius for the first time, but that will be relatively bearable compared with the 47 degrees slash 117 degrees Fahrenheit recorded in Portugal's northern town of Pinau on Wednesday, establishing a new national record. Like, damn, that, I mean, (laughs) that is just rough. Like, just really rough. I mean, I can't even fathom 117 degrees and when you think of that temperature, you think of Dubai. You don't think of northern Portugal. Like that is just just unfathomable to me. It's um it's also been just such a long and difficult winter uh, for all of us, you know, between COVID, the invasion of Ukraine and so on. Now the summer's here and it's come with high inflation, canceled flights, fires, heat waves. Yeah, it's just not looking good. But and also, I mean, I, I really feel for Europe because, I mean, the, the energy crises that have been caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, Germany's cut off that pipeline, the um, Nord Stream 2 pipeline for 10 days, as they say. We'll see if that's true. But, you know, they're already thinking that Europe's going to be in for a, a pretty dark winter. But it looks like the summer here, too. I mean, ACs are, are expensive to run. ACs require a lot of energy as well there's just so many moving pieces that, I mean, Europe's just getting really screwed right now. But also, you know, this is just a warning, I think, of things to come. I mean, we've been talking for years about climate change, and it seems like things are really accelerating, you know. And I've talked to family in California and Nevada, and they have their own heat waves and fires going on right now. So it's it's really concerning. It's really concerning. Um, I just hope everyone stays cool out there. There's really not much else I can say. And... Uh, Moving on, I want to briefly discuss, there's a new controversy, basically, with the Secret Service, and it involves January 6th. So basically, the gist is that the Inspector General, according to The Atlantic, for the Department of Homeland Security, which obviously houses the Secret Service, told Congress that the agency had deleted text messages from January 5th and 6th of 2021. Kind of convenient. And the agency claimed that the messages were lost because of a de- device replacement program, which is according to the inspector general's letter. Now, side note, the inspector general is also being investigated for issues, but there's not enough time in this episode to even go into that angle of it. But it may not be anything. And of course, they do have these device replacement programs, especially when you have a new presidency starting up. But Trump is still in office, right? So Trump still had, what, like four, two weeks to go. It's just a little bit strange that these were the texts that were lost on the specific days that we're talking about here, especially the 6th, right? And it's also convenient because, as Cassidy Hutchinson testified, Trump did try to take the wheel of the Secret Service vehicle, get violent with some agents, and wanted the mags down and didn't care about the rioters being armed. And I've, I've heard, you know, contradictions about her testimony in that section. A lot of Secret Service people have said that's not true. But it is just weird to hear that there is this hole in the footage that happened right on the days that all of this is in question kind of, kind of strange. And you know, I, I'm a fan of Occam's razor. Simplest solution is usually the most feasible. And okay, see, there's a whole missing, missing information from the Secret Service deleted text on the day that there was a coup and the Secret Service are in question. I don't know. I'll, I'll leave that with you to think whatever you want. But I was also reading that the Secret Service has actually already been having Issues with legitimacy, their conduct and accountability, allegiances, all the fun stuff that you don't want to be a problem with the Secret Service. And apparently the Trump era has really tested some things. Well, it's tested a lot of things, but in this case, it's tested the Secret Service. The Washington Post reporter Carol Lennig, who has who has actually kind of chronicled contemporary Secret Service, has written in quotes here. The Secret Service's claim of being politically independent was tested by Trump's tenure in the White House. She discusses how, in one major example, Tony Ornato, who's a Secret Service official, made a deeply unusual move from a civil service job to being deputy chief of staff. New agents were then assigned to Biden's protective detail when he took office, reportedly because of concerns that the old agents were too politically close to Trump. And that Tony Ornato guy, it was, he was moved to being tr- Trump's uh, deputy chief of staff, which is very strange. Um, David Graham in The Atlantic also writes here in quotes, during the Obama administration, the Secret Service allowed people to fire shots at the White House, permitted an army guard or armed guard to ride an elevator with the president, got into trouble overseas, and had car accidents after drinking too much. End quotes. Now, we'll have to see what comes out of this, but it just seems like the Secret Service, a lot like our other institutions, is kind of facing some trust and transparency issues. And there's a great line in uh, Graham's piece. It reads when people say the Secret Service's job is to protect the president, they usually mean it in a physical way, not a political one. And yeah, you know, it's it's just kind of strange. There's There's been so many unprecedented things since Trump's been in office. And it is weird that I, I remember reading about that when Biden first came into office, that there were concerns about the actual loyalty of the Secret Service to the job, like they had to replace people. That's just not normal. But We'll have to see. Again, I am not going to go out and say the Secret Service are actually covering anything up yet. We just don't know enough yet to be sure. Finally, I want to talk a bit or for a bit about the culture wars in the U.S. and why it seems like people are just talking past one another. You know, even when both sides maybe are correct in some ways, it seems like the values or the definitions or what each side wants to accomplish are being missed either deliberately or just accidentally because people are talking over each other. And I'm not trying to do both sides-ism here, but it's more more me just kind of trying to say that if we keep talking past one another, it's going to lead to policies and dynamics that are just going to divide the country further and I think make issues irreconcilable. And the first example I can think of is this very, very unproductive hearing last week that was so cringe. I tried to watch parts of it. It's just so cringe, and it's everything that's wrong with America right now. But it was a very bad hearing last week in the Capitol between Josh Hawley, who is, in my opinion, an atrocious senator. Ever since he put his fist up to the mob on January 6th, he will never be anything other than that to me. And um, it was between him and the UC Berkeley law professor, Kyra Bridge. Or Kiara Bridge, sorry. And basically depending which side of the aisle you are politically— It seems like both of them won the debate, depending which side you're on. But it wasn't in a useful or effective way. So if you watched Fox News or listened to the Daily Wire or were on OANN or whatever, Holly was just asking, you know, a fairly simple question. And Bridge could not answer it. That's what some people could think. And instead, Bridge was this woke person calling everybody racist and harmful, blah, blah, blah. But if you were on the left, Holly was being transphobic and harming the community and leading to death and suicide. And the best way I've seen the more sane journalists who actually just took this debate with nuance was basically they said when, semant- when, when semantics dominates civics. And that's exactly what happened here. And I think it's probably one of the biggest problems in our society right now. Now, I'm going to uh, tread on this topic lightly because I can already see the criticism coming. But let's go for it. Let's jump in. Let's just uh, let's just jump in. So. Last Tuesday, there was a televised Judiciary Committee hearing in the Senate, and it was on abortion access and obviously all the horrible things going on with that. And UC Berkeley law professor Kiara Bridge was there to testify because she is an expert on reproductive rights, and that's one of her big expertise. And obviously, you know, law professor at Berkeley, definitely (laughs) not... Not in the center or the right. She's definitely leaning towards the left, let's just say. And I'm sure some of you have already seen this, but basically Holly asks Bridge, in quotes, you've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. Would that be women? Then she responds, in quotes, many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. There are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. Then Holly says something to the effect of, so this is not a woman's issue, it is something else. And she responds that abortion impacts women, but it also impacts other groups. Then Holly asks her what this issue is really about, if it's not only about women. And then she says in quotes, I want to recognize that your line of questioning is transphobic and opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing them. Holly then says, says in quotes, wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who could have pregnancies. Then they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and it's not productive. Holly's trying to basically grandstand and... Bridges is trying to make him sound transphobic, and they're both kind of right, and they're both kind of wrong. Like, it, it, it's not really one where there were any winners or losers. Like I said, I am not a Hawley fan. He probably is transphobic, but I don't think what he was doing in this case was. I also want to read some headlines from both sides, because this can understand how each side saw this. You have the New York Magazine. This is their headline. Josh Hawley called out as transphobic in Senate hearing. Huffington Post, here's their headline. Professor schools Senator Josh Hawley for his transphobic questions in abortion hearing. Here's a Newsmax one. Sorry, lost it there. Senate hearing Democrat cannot identify what a woman is. Daily Wire, in quotes. C-SPAN caught up in woke insanity. Fox, and then Fox News also had him on and championed his straightforward questioning. And it was a lot like the Ketanji Brown-Jackson hearings where... Everyone just criticized this conversation because they couldn't define what a woman is. But this was much more cringy. Katanji Brown-Jackson was not not in any place where she needed to do that. In this case, it just came off as ridiculous. Now, sorry, we got a honker up there. Uh, now, this is where things get complicated and show exactly, in my opinion, what is wrong with our discussions in this country. Josh, Josh Hawley, like I said, he is grandstanding. He knows what bridges means by people with a capacity for pregnancy and why she's using that formulation. He knows she's being inclusionary. However, what he is doing is effectively trying to stoke the culture war, right? The Atlantic discusses this in an article and it says in quotes, he pushes for clarification to highlight her choice to use trans inclusionary language, knowing her diction is discordant to many Americans and controversial in her own party and coalition. So basically, Holly saw an opportunity to highlight this issue that is even contested on the left, and he was able to appeal to people by asking whether this is a woman's issue or not. And boy, I don't even want to get into that one. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to avoid that with a fifty-foot pole. So yeah, but that's what he's doing. He's obviously, he obviously knows what's happening, and he's taking advantage of the moment. And that's exactly what he would do. I would expect nothing less. But I, I just hate exchanges like this because. They will get each person kudos on their side. Holly was being disingenuous, and Bridge clearly went into attack mode, labeled him harmful for just trying to clarify something that many Americans need clarified. Both were wrong. That's, that's my opinion. I will also add that I think it's a bit ridiculous to say that this line of questioning opens up certain communities to violence. Now, I can understand how it could, in a sense, because... For example, claiming that trans people do not exist or trying to cancel gay teachers in schools. This could lead to violence because you're trying to erase a community and it doesn't give these people a valid voice in society. And I think that's dangerous and stupid. However, in the abortion conversation, I have just not seen evidence that asking questions such as what Holly did are really the issue. You know, and it's quite problematic to just call discourse harmful because you don't agree with it. And I'm kind of sick of seeing people do it. It's quite a liberal, It's quite authoritarian. Also, here's a question. If the Huffington Post really agreed that asking these questions during a hearing would lead to more deaths and suicide, why did they air it? Why did they talk about it so much? They made Josh Hawley's statements go viral. So if it's that dangerous, why make them as popular as you did? I just think it's ridiculous to say it is harmful and causes violence when someone disagrees with you. End of story. And like I said, this is not me defending Holly. And I know he does not want to go along with being inclusionary. And he doesn't want to recognize these issues. The Republican party's become more homophobic and more transphobic. But he should not have been attacked just for asking questions and I see it happen way too often. It's even happened in my own life and it's it's kind of insane. And I think the Atlantic put it best here when it said in quotes, instead of modeling a constructive exchange by clarifying their own terminology, Holly and Bridges talk past each other, mutually aware all the while that they are talking past each other, portraying each other as bigoted and crazy. Also, this debate was just unproductive because each side was, u- was using different definitions, right? And they could frame the issue as they wanted. Basically, you know, Holly is defining man by someone with private parts... Testicles, and a Y chromosome. Bridges is saying that a man is an identity that corresponds to an, to an internal sense of felt gender. So basically, Holly is arguing about sex, Bridges is talking about gender, and both know what the other one means and they are still trying not to understand it. And I fully think we need to recognize trans rights and that there is high, much more significant levels of violence and suicide in the community, but at the same time, I also think that these discussions will not help solve this issue and bring more Americans on board. Hawley and Bridges both knew what they were talking about and they were fine with it. Now, I, I wanted to use one more example of this. I think it's critical race theory or CRT, whatever you want to call it. And it's another issue that both sides, I think, are talking past each other. Let me give an example. It is you have the right on one side that thinks that CRT is this existential threat to the United States and passing laws to ban the teaching of certain material they are banning books for very flimsy reasons, and they are even trying to kind of downplay issues like slavery. I saw one case in the South where a school was trying to use the term displaced people instead of slaves. Like, that stuff's crazy, right? Critical race theory is not the biggest issue facing the country, and it's definitely been a fear-mongering tool used by people like Christopher Rufo. But then on the left, at the same time, you have a side that is in denial over CRT existing at all in schools. And if anyone criticizes some of these topics their kids are being taught, for example, they are just called racist, right? Much like how Bridges just calls anyone who questions her harmful as well. So people on this side of the aisle, the left, are kind of neglecting the fact that CRT is a theory that was created as a a perspective to study history through. And like any other theory, the origins of CRT go back to the 1970s, the legal theory basically stressed the role of structural racism, so, would, so meaning embedded in systems, laws, policies, rather than the individual sort of racism. And basically these structures are maintaining inequality. There's definitely a lot of grains of truth to that. But again, this was a legal theory that was created in the 1970s, and it created a perspective or a lens to look over specific cases, not to apply to everything and take it as 100% true. And this is a perspective that is more and more prevalent in our society, and a watered-down version of it is prevalent in our academia and in our schools. In, for example, in this week's issue of The Economist, the, the newspaper writes in quotes here, Progressives stretched the scope of CRT before conservatives did. The theory has spread into concepts like critical whiteness studies. The Economist continues, Read White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, And you might think white people can hardly do anything about racism without inadvertently causing harm to non-whites. Two years ago, this newspaper described the way CRT has evolved to see racism embedded in everything as illiberal, even revolutionary. And especially in younger classrooms, there have been examples that I've seen, I think it was in a Florida textbook that they use strange examples about race they they try to really clarify these issues sometimes in math problems and younger and younger kids have to read books about racial inequality stuff like that and i think there's a time a place and an age you know sometimes parents just want to talk about this stuff with their kids on their own and be able to debrief them afterwards instead of having it taught in a third grade classroom and again I do not think that this is happening frequently. A lot of studies out of Stanford that I saw for this say that it's not happening as frequently as people think and it's not that common. But for the left to pretty much say it doesn't exist and for the right to say it's super frequent, it's a problem. And there are examples like San Francisco's school board is basically, in my opinion, a great example of a board that embraced these critical theories and just went too far, right? Rather than trying to get kids back into schools during the pandemic, it fretted about renaming 44 schools after figures linked to racism or oppression, even Abraham Lincoln, right? And they also went after merit in schools. They wanted to just pretty much get rid of like, you know, a merit system. And a lot of people stood up against that and were like, no. And but if you stood up, you were called racist. And even as some of these board members were recalled, they were calling the recall racist like that's unfortunately seeing some of the effects of the CRT type of lens and the perspective in action. And of course, like I've mentioned, the right has demagogued this issue, especially thanks to Christopher Rufo, who works for the Manhattan Institute. And he's really been on a media tour, fear, mongering people about it. And in April of this year, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, signed HB7, which is known as a, Stop the Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act stands for Woke, the Woke Act, and it clamps down on the hiring of woke CRT consultants in schools and universities and CRT training in companies. The Economist notes that in June, Florida's education board banned teaching CRT and the 1619 Project. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and um, the same month, a bill in Texas was sold by its governor Greg Abbott. In quotes as a strong move to abolish critical race theory in Texas. It also bans the 1619 project and discussions of several race and sex related topics. I think the problem is, is that the rhetoric has expanded to gay and trans issues, and it's really led to this kind of exclusionary ideas. It's also allowed to kind of almost just attacking gay and trans communities, as we've seen in places like Florida. Also, like on, on the legal side of it, it's like passing bills to actually do this is tough because how do you really codify an issue that neither side can define specifically? Like Flor- Florida's uh, Woke Act, it's like okay, what is this really going to accomplish? Like, do you really want bills limiting free speech? And and unfortunately, both sides are becoming less and less pro free speech. They're becoming more and more liberal, and again, they're talking over each other and. Obviously, you know, average voters do have their worries about this stuff because Glenn Youngkin pretty much ran on this issue in Virginia and now he's the governor and he appealed to crossover voters. He appealed to moderates. I think learning about history is obviously important. We need to learn about our issues to move forward. And kids have historically been taught a very whitewashed version. And I guess my issue is that being said, CRT is not also 100 percent factual And it also looks at everything through a biased lens. I don't think we want bias on either side when we're talking about education. And the CRT that people like Ibram X. Kemdi and D'Angelo talk about is is biased. And maybe the right is correct that we need to have a larger debate about what should be taught in the classroom. And maybe the left is correct that that the curriculum needs to be updated. Maybe CRT should be taught in college classrooms, though, not in earlier education. But it's hard to have these conversations when we're talking over each other. It really is. And I think that's the the root of these issues. So, yeah, I, I don't see this getting better. But I, I just wanted to speak out about a few of these issues because sometimes it's really hard for people to speak up. And I, I just think there's so much insanity. like that. It, but it's just not productive when you're either calling people socialists or or extremists, or radicals, or fascists. Like, we need to save those terms for when they really matter, not just when we're calling someone we disagree with them that. Anyways, uh, that's going to do it for today. Hopefully you stay cool if you're in any of these places with heat waves. Drink a lot of water. Stay safe and sane. We'll be back Wednesday, hopefully with some updates on the January 6th hearings. Have a great day.